from Kurtco Media. Coming up on the show, you got to put some work into it. But then when you do, that's when you really feel like the hard work has really paid off. This was totally worth it because they are majestic, beautiful creatures. That's Condonast Traveler Global Editorial Director Divya Tani. I'm Bruce Wallen, and this is Travel That Matters. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Travel That Matters, the show where we explore the world's most extraordinary travel experiences. Today, we have a special destination episode with a very special guest. Divya Tani is the global editorial director of Condé Nast Traveler, a job for which you recently relocated from India to the UK. And I'll say when I, I was back in the day, I was the editorial director at Rob Report magazine. And everybody used to tell me that I had the best job in the world. But Divya definitely has me beat. She oversees a global network of editors and travel writers. And of course, she also gets to travel quite a bit herself. She's an expert in all things travel, but particularly her home country of India. That wasn't always the case. And we'll hear from Divya why. But these days, she is an incredible source of information on how best to explore the many, many different regions of the country. Everything from the Himalayas in the north down to Chetanad in the south. I, for one, actually have not been to India. And it's always been a, a dream of mine to go, but I've never pulled the trigger and never really known how best to approach it. Now I do, after speaking with Divya. And you will, too, by the end of this episode. If you like this episode of Travel It Matters, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Also, be sure to stick around for my wrap-up at the end of the show and keep an eye out for our all-new MasterChef series debuting soon. But for now, let's head to India with Kananas Traveler's global editorial director, Divya Tani. Hey, Travel That Matters listeners, it's Bruce. And even when I'm not traveling, I'm always looking for ways to explore the flavors of the world, which is one reason why I'm a big fan of the award-winning gourmet flavors from Watkins. Spicing up kitchens since 1868, Watkins offers a full line of flavoring products, including extracts, organic spices and herbs, seasoning blends, grilling rubs and marinades, bitters, and even artificial dye-free baking decorations and food coloring. Watkins' innovative flavoring products have been a secret chef ingredient for over 155 years. Their product lineup includes gourmet baking vanilla, pure almond and lemon extracts, delicious organic seasoning blends such as lemon pepper, Cajun, and everything bagel sesame seasoning, as well as a complete line of organic A to Z spices. I personally love grilling, and Watkins' 1868 organic grilling seasonings, rubs, and marinades are sure to liven up any barbecue. It's all part of the company's commitment to flavor every moment. For more information on Watkins World of Flavors, go check out Watkins1868.com and join their community on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. That's Watkins1868.com, where travel meets taste and you can flavor every moment. Divya. Thank you for joining us on Travel That Matters. So great to have you. Thank you for having me, Bruce. I'm excited. Okay, so Divya, with all these places that you get to go, what was the last destination? Okay, I'm guessing you probably plan ahead a lot. You've got a lot of the, you know, or people planning them for you. 
What was the last destination you went to that just completely surprised you? You know, a place maybe you didn't expect all that much out of it and you were just blown away. You know what I loved? And I'm sure, Bruce, you feel the same way And since you worked in, in travel as well. But I think that the best trips are when you actually don't do that much research and you kind of are surprised by by just showing up there. And I went recently to a friend's 50th birthday and we went to Bucharest. It was about 70 or 80 people that he took very nicely. Wow. <laughs> Great celebration trip. We know that's their age these days. And we went to Bucharest. And what I love about this is that I didn't research a thing. I didn't plan a thing. They had booked the hotel. They had planned the nightlife, the nightclubs, the restaurants, what we would eat. I didn't even have to choose a main course. That's my favorite trip because you get to do so little of that kind of thing when you work in travel. And Bucharest was, honestly, for me, it was a complete surprise and discovery. It was so much fun. It was so beautiful because you hear a lot about Prague. You hear a lot about Budapest. I feel like a lot of those cities we tend to talk about quite a bit and they, see, they keep popping up for various reasons. Bucharest, I've heard considerably less. And I have to say the nightlife blew me away. It was fantastic. Some of the best DJs I've ever heard partying out in the outdoors under the stars. Perfect weather. I just, I had the time of my life. I was there 48 hours and I can't wait to go back. That's one of the places I'm, I'm actually looking at for this summer. So I'm glad you brought that up. But I've been looking at it more from the wilderness. So Romania has, I guess, the, you know, the largest untouched forests in all of Europe and, and great wildlife. I mean, there's bears, there's wolves, there's, you know, all kinds of stuff. And that's what I've been thinking about, like when I think about it, but not Great teaching. Yeah, yeah, not not as a city break. I know, I know. And and apparently you can access a lot of this amazing, gorgeous countryside 40 minutes outside of the city, which is amazing. It's so accessible. But I have to say, even as just a city break, obviously I live in London, so it's very easy to pop in and out of different places right. in Europe for just a few days. And that's I've been living in London just two years, and that has been my absolute favorite part of living in London. Okay, so I, I expected you to convince me to go to India, but now I think you just convinced me to go to, <laughs> to Romania instead. So Bruce, if I do not have you booked by the end of this hour, by the end of this show, I will not have done <laughs> my job. You're going to India and you're coming right. with me. I'm going to take okay. you. Perfect. So, okay, let's talk about India. You grew up there. As a kid, like, did you do a lot of travel through the country? And you brought up like London is so great because you can get to all these other countries. India's not. It's a massive country like the US. It's like so much of your travel is going to be within the country. So what did you love about that growing up? And like, where were some of your great adventures as a kid? Basically, I was born and raised in Bombay, which many people, of course, now know as Mumbai. My father, though, lived in Africa, in Nigeria. And then he moved to the Caribbean, which is where all of his family lives. Meanwhile, my mother's entire family lived in the Far East, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in Indonesia. I'm starting, I'm starting to understand why you're in travel, by the way, <laughs> why you work in travel. This makes sense now. Okay, it does, it does make sense when you think about it. But because of that, I grew up going absolutely nowhere in India, except for Goa, which, as you know, is uh, very close to Mumbai. It's about an hour's flight, and it is incredible beaches great food, great nightlife. The place has just exploded um, in much the same way that people, you know, very many people left different parts of, of the U.S. and ended up in either Miami or Austin during the pandemic. 
Same thing happened in Goa. And the scene there now is just absolutely buzzing. But to go back to your original question, when I was growing up, aside from Goa, I didn't travel in India at all. I traveled to all of these places where my where my family was obviously to see my family because it was the only chance that we would get to see them. So I grew up not knowing very much about the country. Um, and I will say that at the time that I was growing up in the 80s, it wasn't considered cool to travel in India. If you were, you know, if you were someone who could afford it, you you traveled abroad and it was really sad, but there just wasn't as much of an appreciation in in at least in, in the society that, that I lived in, for what India had to offer. And if you think about it now and you see what, what a shift has taken place, because today all of us know and all of us recognize what an incredible country we were so lucky to have grown up in. And uh, now I can't wait. So I had a lot of making up for lost time to do when I moved back to India. I went to college in the U.S. And when I moved back to India, that's when I really started to explore it. So I was in my 20s. And the very first time I went to Delhi, which is the capital, was in was on a business trip when I was 21. I saw the Taj, believe it or not, I saw the Taj Mahal for the first time right before I started my job at Traveler. And I said, look, if this gig happens, I can't I can't take it and, and say that I'm the editor of Traveler in India and I haven't seen the Taj Mahal. Like, I, I can't let this happen. That was obviously many years ago, but it has been such a privilege and such an honor to to be able to to then travel so much in the country and discover it for myself, first of all, and then to be able to have the, the privilege of, of showcasing that to Indian audiences and then after that to, to global audiences and to tell them about my country and, and tell them how amazing a destination it is, I think has been the greatest, the greatest honor of my life, without a doubt. As you know, I've never been. And I think with India, because it's so big, like the U.S., something... It's it's almost it's intimidating as it's, so I I, lo I look at him like I need a month I can't I can't just go to India for a week right and and I need a month I need two months most of us don't have that kind of time but then it's also I f I feel like sometimes with places like that when they're so big and it's so intimate you end up just falling into the tourist trap you brought up the Taj Mahal quite honestly like if I went to India I don't think I want to go to the Taj Mahal I'm sure it's amazing but I don't want to wait in line with people and and so. How do I go about it in a way that I'm not just going to do the same thing everybody else is doing? So first of all, I would say, look, if you were to flip it and if I said to you, Bruce, I've never been to the U.S. and I have a week, what are you going to tell me to do? You Malibu. can't. <laughs> come, come visit us in okay. Malibu. <laughs> You're going to say come to Malibu. And then are okay. you going to say, Divya, spend a week in Malibu and then never come back? And that's the You're U.S., not. right? Of that's course, the U.S., of course. right? You exactly. can't. Right. You have right. to think of India in the exact same way. It is mammoth. It is so big. And the, the main thing about it is that it is so diverse. And I think that's the key to understand about the country. You know, I always say that anything you say about India is 100% true to one person and 100% untrue to that person's neighbor because we are just radically... These these are a cluster of, you know, 30 different states. Every state has a different language. Every state has a vastly different cuisine. We dress differently in each state. You know, it's like 50 different countries in one. There is more, there is more diversity in India than there is, I feel, in, in all of Western Europe or in all of Europe. It's that radically different. So to think that you, you have to sort of break it down and not think of India as one trip. 
You just can't yeah. do it. So yeah. you've got to you've got to zone in on one destination, and I'll give you a few recommendations, of course. I like that. Good. good. But you've got to zone in on one destination and say, look, this is what I'm going to explore on my first trip to India, and then when I come back. This is the other place that I'm going to go. But I think you've got to really find what speaks to you because if you want to go off the beaten track and if you are someone that doesn't want to do what everybody does, then you have to invest a little bit of time and just see what really speaks to you. There's no right or wrong because there are so many different places to go and each one is really incredible and special. So the one thing I will say is that you should use a specialist. I do recommend mm-hmm. using a travel agent because the logistics can be hard and you want to be sure that you're not wasting time if all you have is a week or two weeks or even if you have three, you don't want to waste time anyway. And good recommendations really help when you go to a place like India because if you're just going online and reading random things, there's a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of different opinions. It's hard to know. So you want to go with the opinion of people that you trust. So either, well, <laughs> Condé Nast or this podcast or use a travel specialist. It's funny to hear you say that because I've, I've, said that to people before. I was like, I'm in the business of travel media and I can't tell. When I go online, I'm like, I have no idea what's real and what's good advice and what's bad advice. I do go to Con Nast Traveler sometimes, you know, because I know that there there's legitimacy there. And so, but it is hard to figure out on your own. So I, I totally agree with that. And you brought up kind of like, there's so many different, you know, what's your focus? What are you interested in? Let's talk about that a little bit. Cause okay, let's say food, you know? Okay, so a lot of people are enthusiastic about going to India for the cuisine. What's a place, what's a trip you suggest? I, clearly, it's again, it's very different in Goa than it's going to be in the Himalayas, Himalayan regions. What What are some of your recommendations for a like culinary-focused region that you love? If you can handle your spice, then I would say... Chetanad is a region that I absolutely, absolutely think is one of the most exciting and it's one of the most sophisticated and refined cuisines um, that I've ever had. And it is so underplayed and underrated. It's down south. And a lot of the perception of it is that it's very heavy in vegetarian food if you're from that region, but it's actually not. It's actually very heavy in meat as well. Very many different kinds of spices. And there's still a lot of places where you can access it in a really authentic way. And that's something that I find can be tricky depending on where you go. So for me, if you can handle the spice, I would say, and you're a real foodie and a real purist, you really want to make it a food trip, then that's where you go. But if you love food and you're not as good at spice then I would say Kerala is a fantastic place to go. Another very, very sophisticated cuisine. You know, you might know all the beautiful sort of coconut-based stews, appams, which are made out of rice, rice flour. Really delicate, crispy, you know, obviously everyone knows in Kerala, it's one of the states where you can still eat great beef in the country and a lot of places you can't. And then if you really want to go off the beaten track, there's toddy shops, which are little liquor stores and bars that you go to that recommendation here is very, very important because you could end up not in the best place, but it is a real gateway to the culture. You know, these are where people come together and they talk they talk politics and they talk about everything that's going on in, in the area. And it really is, you know, in India, I think more than anywhere, because our food is designed to be shared, right? We don't have a system where you order for an individual portion of something. It's not it's not the same way as it is in, in a lot of Western cuisine. Everything is, is shared for the table. And because of that, 
um, you know, when they say you break bread together, you're really breaking it together. I mean, you're, 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 it's a very communal thing that you're doing. And the conversations all happen over food. Indians are famous for discussing what they're going to eat at dinner when we're at lunch. That's just the way we roll. And food is just an integral part of the culture. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Conanast Travelers Global Editorial Director, Divya Tani. Solar from Kurtco Media, a fully immersive sonic adventure with revolutionary sound from Dolby Atmos, starring Stephanie Beatrice. Jamal has given up, but I'm going to find a way to save him. Tony Award winner Alan Cumming. Leaders have to make sacrifices. Academy Award winner Helen Hunt. This isn't how our mission ends. And Jonathan Banks. Getting you home is the only thing I can do to give my life any worth. Solar, available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're if you're someone that really is interested in in the contemporary space and what's happening today in a sort of more contemporary fashion in food because Indian chefs are totally having a moment globally. There are some really exciting restaurants. We actually, Condinas runs India's top restaurant awards. Um, and so we have the list of the 50 best restaurants in the country that comes out every year, which is a great resource. But one of the places that I'm super excited about only opened two weeks ago. So I even haven't been yet, but I know it's going to be amazing because the chef is out of the world. His name is Pratik Sadhu, and he's just opened a restaurant called Nar, which is in the Himalayas, very close to a, a new resort, which is called Amaya. And he's really experimenting with Himalayan cuisine. So he's going sort of looking at the Himachali Dham, which is a Dham is a sort of, it's, it's a very elaborate meal that you eat during celebrations so it takes a lot of time and effort to prepare. But what he's done is he's given it a really contemporary spin. And because he's, you know, he's a, a, a trained chef, he's worked at very many five-star hotels in the country before he worked on a restaurant called Mask, which is today one of the, on, on the world's, um, you know, top 50 restaurants list. So he really brings to it um, a different perception and a different eye. And what it's going to do for putting food from the Himalayas and that region on the map is going to be incredible. I think this is going to be a restaurant really to, to look out for. So even even when it comes to food, you've got a lot of options, Bruce. So it really depends on what you're into. I think you bring up a good point too, like with the contemporary, with the, you know, the Michelin star type of restaurants. Look, I think in the US, probably in the UK too, Indian food People think of it as like a place you go at lunch with the buffet, right? And mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. sure, there's, I mean, amazing Indian food all over the place, but it, there's not that perception of it at that level, right? It's not considered like, you know, French or, or something like that, where you're going out for a really nice meal, Indian, right? So do you see that changing? 100%. So it already is happening. If you come to London, which is where I now live, the Indian food that you get in London today is on par with some of the best Indian food that you get out in India. And if you see the level of sophistication of not just the food, but honestly, even of the restaurants, you know, they are absolutely 
beautiful restaurants, not kitsch anymore. There's no buffets. You can't get a lunch to go. There's nothing. I mean, there's no section on the menu called curry. You know, all of those things are out. You can't get away with that stuff in London anymore. So the scene for Indian food in London has drastically changed. I, I always talk about a restaurant in London called Bibi. And that's by an amazing chef called Chet Sharma. He is definitely one to watch. Um, he's received a lot of awards already. He's only been open for two years. His restaurant's in Mayfair. And again, it's called Bibi. And the cuisine that he's, what he's doing here with Indian food is so interesting because he's taken flavors that we know but he's using them in ways that we've never seen before. So he has this one dish, which is scallops in nimbupani. And nimbupani basically translates to fresh lemonade. And if you're Indian, you drink fresh lemonade with every single, practically every lunch you go to. It's just a very standard drink for us. It usually has some mint in it as well. And we use both sugar and salt. And what he's done is he's taken that flavor that we know so well and is so familiar and so nostalgic but then he's put raw raw scallop in it. And you're like, what? And for a second, your mind doesn't know. You're like, what is this dish? How weird. It's like a ceviche almost. Like a, it, it is. It's, it's exactly like a- that. It's exactly that. So there is so much innovation. And I think the chefs that we have across the country in India today are doing the most amazing work. And we're seeing that a lot of that is being appreciated. So they're popping up all over the place. They're popping up in London. They're popping up in Hong Kong. And they're, they're all over Dubai. They're, you know, they're in really international cities. There's, there's great things happening for Indian food. I think that uh, in another couple of years, you're going to see even in New York, you're going to see great fine dining that, that's Indian. And I think it's going to totally shift the way people think about Indian food. Okay. On the flip side of that, you mentioned the the liquor stores. What did you what did you call them? The liquor stores that you can go and get like little <laughs> the, bites and the toddy the toddy shops. The toddy shops. Okay. So the, on that, like you mentioned, you know, you got to get a good recommendation. What's your advice for? Okay. Yeah, I am going here. It is very easy. I got to say, like I I was in Thailand recently. Super excited about the food. It was hit or miss because I I don't think I necessarily did it right. I don't I don't I don't think I went about it right. What's your advice for when you go there? It's not just going on TripAdvisor and finding out where, or Yelp or whatever, finding out where everyone else has been. It's like, how would you suggest going about that? I'm going to a city in India. How do I find some great authentic restaurants that are going to, you know, be fantastic? The truth is that, that you know, definitely Condonest Traveler. But again, if you're a real foodie, I can give you even other resources that you should use. You know, we have a great uh, magazine, for example, called Goya Journal, run by two fantastic girls in India that is really dedicated to food culture. So it's not that they're just doing the food guides to places, which is what Traveler does. And so the list is a great list if that's all you're looking for. But if you really want to understand the background, because food has a story and the story is always people. And if you really want to get into that, if you really want to understand about food culture and the history of where this food came from, because the history of food will tell you the history of the world and the history of the country, then, you know, Goya Journal is a great resource. It's it's fantastic to read. It's beautifully produced. When I go home to India um, and I just have a few days, um, you know, and all I can think about is, before I get there, I'm like, look, I just want home food. I want my mom to make me my favorite dishes. And then I get there and I have a great meal with my mom. And after that, I'm like, 
this was great. Now we've got to go to the Bombay canteen for dinner because I miss that food. You know, it's funny, but during the lockdown, you know, when we were, we, when we had a, we had a pretty long lockdown in India. And so I was home for, for a long time. And at some point I started keeping a journal and a little sketchbook and I started to actually draw the dishes that I was really, really craving from my favorite restaurants. I don't think I'd ever, ever given it that much time or thought or energy, but to really go back and think about the dishes that make you want to get up out of bed, get out of your pajamas, not use Deliveroo or whatever whatever Uber Eats or whatever app you're using and go to these places because it's not just, you know, the dish is fantastic. You can't get it anywhere else. It does something for you that that no other dish in the world anywhere else does. I mean, that's, that's you know, that's the love of food. That's what makes you want to get up and travel and, and go across the world. Okay, so... India also has the Himalayas, probably the ultimate adventure destination in the world, potentially. They've got, you know, incredible coastline. You've got jungles with tigers and and leopards. Like what's kind of been your favorite adventure that you've been on in the country? So I'm a big, big safari person. I absolutely love safaris. Safari in India is First of all, I should say it's very different to going on safari in Africa. And that's something that you should mentally, you know, you should you should be aware of that. Because when you go to Africa, it doesn't matter if you're in Kenya, if you're in Tanzania, it, wherever you go, there is a plethora of wildlife. I mean, there are times that, you know, my plane hasn't been able to land because there was too many giraffes, you know, on the <laughs> on the runway. The first time I went to South Africa, I, you know, I went and I was like, oh, my God, I hope I get to see the big five. I saw the big five before I got to the camp. You know, (laughs) I literally saw the big five on my way into the camp. So um, there's so much of it. It's teeming in so many places with, with that kind of wildlife. Whereas when you go to India, which is the only place in the world, of course, that you can see the tiger. You have to, it is hard work. You are not just going to be gifted tigers on a, on a platter when you land at the airport. I mean, you have to go searching. You need a great guide. You need a great driver. They have to be really intuitive. They've got to know what they're doing. Um, and sometimes you'll see them and on many drives, you will not. It's a, it's a game. You've got to put some work into it, you know. <laughs> but then when you do, I mean, that's when you really feel like, the hard work has really paid off. This was totally worth it because they are majestic, beautiful creatures that have a very different kind of power to any of the other cats. So it's totally worth it. But the experience of driving in the jungles is so extraordinary because, of course, you see other other smaller wildlife along the way. Of course, you'll see a lot of that. But the jungles are fantastic. And my, my favorite, I would say, is Ranthambur which is in Rajasthan. And the reason that I love Ranthambore so much is because, first of all, the light is just beautiful in these trees and it's, it's lush, dense forest. But also in the middle of the forest, there is the ruins of like a temple that is practically a thousand years old. Where do you see that? You know, where else in the world do you get to see that? It is just the most exceptional, extraordinary thing. And that is one of the things that I love so much about traveling in India because we have not done a good job of preserving our heritage. And, you know, it's a very old country. We have a lot of very, very old monuments, but we haven't protected them in the way that 
Europe has protected them, for example. You know, if if these ruins existed in Europe, they would have been beautifully conserved and protected and you'd have to stand in line very graciously to access them and pay for a ticket and all of that. And in India, you just wander around and they're, they're just in front of you and you can go sit on these walls or these rocks and, and there's no one there to, to say anything. And there's you know, it's it's not always a good thing. In fact, it's actually a bad thing. But the fact that you can you can access them and that they're open to everybody is also there's a, there's a beauty and a magic in that as well. When it comes to safari, you have to you have to plan your trip because you have to think about the weather. Obviously, it's wonderful between November and February, which is peak peak time to go to India anyway. That's the best time to go because the weather is amazing. Um, it's not too hot. March onwards, it starts to get warm in most parts of the country. But if you are a diehard safari person and you must maximize your chances of seeing the tiger, then you want to go in April or May where it's uncomfortably hot because that's when they're going to come out to go to the watering holes. So you're almost guaranteed a site. But of course, then you're you're going to you're going to be sweating a lot. So you kind of you kind of decide are you going to go when the weather is beautiful and the chances of seeing them might be not as high or you want to go when it's super hot and you're maximizing your chances. And and look, I think there's some, we we we've talked about this a lot on the show that that concept of when there's effort involved, the payoff is even better, right? And sometimes when you're, you're, you're working hard for some kind of experience, you end up having experience that other people don't have. And I mean, it's kind of, the, the gorillas are a similar thing. Like when you go on mm-hmm. a gorilla trek, you don't know if you're, you and there you're walking too. You could be walking for eight hours and not see any gorillas. You probably mm-hmm. will. But, but then when you do, it's- It's all worth incredible. it. Incredible, right. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I mean, the tiger, I, you know, that is absolutely- one of my dreams is to go go see a tiger in the wild. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to hear about a festival that Divya said is reason enough to plan a trip to India. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Women Who Travel is a transported podcast for anyone curious about the world. We talk to adventurers and athletes. I've raced the God's Own Adventure Race, which is on the South Island and goes through the mountains down in the Southern Alps on New Zealand. That was eight days spent out in the wilderness. And chefs. Iranian food is home, it's family, it's love. And we share dispatches from our listeners. Ireland is full of these... I will call them ghosts of the past. From stampeding elephants to training sled dogs. We hear it all. The dogs will curl right up with you, and it can be kind of cozy waiting things out. New episodes of Women Who Travel publish every Thursday. Join us wherever you listen. I want to talk about Diwali too, because that is that is a you know a festival that I think some people are curious about going and experiencing. It, first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about the festival and what it is? But then also, what's your advice? Is that a good time to go? You know, are there are there ways to do it? Ways not to do it? So India, as you know, has a lot of festivals. Diwali is definitely a very very special time to be in the country. It's the festival of love and light. It 
signifies the triumph of good over evil, light over darkness. And so there's really sort of powerful messages in everything that's happening. There's also a lot of rituals that are involved. It's when we, you know, it's like Christmas in the sense that it's when everybody exchanges gifts. It's when everybody decorates their homes. Everything is super crowded. There's going to be a lot of traffic. Um, But the celebrations really are in people's homes. So I think that if you're going to celebrate Diwali in India, it's really important that you know at least one person that wants to wants to invite you to their home for Diwali because it's the kind of thing that you want to experience it in someone's home, not only in, in a hotel. And all the hotels do beautiful things around Diwali without a doubt, but really you want to be in someone's home. And by the way, even if you're traveling and you don't know someone in the country already, ask your specialist because As a culture, as I said, you know, for us, if we have people visiting from out of town and it's Diwali, we will 100% invite them to our home. We don't have to know them extremely well, but that's the culture. It's very inclusive. And if we're celebrating something, even more so. And so you will definitely be invited into people's homes. I would say that, look, the odds are if, if you get friendly with even the staff or your guides or whoever it is you meet along the way, they're probably going to invite you to their home to celebrate as well. Make sure you take something with you. It's always nice to take a box of, of sweets or, you know, some, even if it's small, just a little gesture or ritual. I would not take alcohol because you don't know if everybody drinks during that time, but definitely take something sweet and be a part, you know, partake in it. Don't be, don't be, don't feel like you might be intruding because honestly, for everybody, this is, a time where everyone is welcome. Everybody celebrates Diwali. It doesn't matter what your religion is or what your ethnicity is. That's because I do think that like in some cases as an outsider, when you go to a festival or a religious event, it's not like proper to kind of try to get too involved. Right. I I think, but that's, that's great advice that in, in this case it is like, they want you to be involved and to get into it and to to partake. So I, cause I do think there's other instances where, you know, maybe that would be inappropriate. You feel kind of like an intruder. That is definitely not the case. When you're in India, I would say that as you probably know, it's not unusual for people to live either with their parents or to live in very large extended families, which we call joint families. So you might have 20 people that live in, in a home together of, of different generations. This is how we live. This is normal. So, feel free. Don't feel like you're intruding. If if they invite you, if they invite you, you should absolutely, absolutely take the invitation. Again, that's why I think working with a specialist or speaking to someone who's local is really important because they can give you those little tips and tricks. You know, I was at lunch just today with somebody who was planning a trip to, to India in March. And I said, oh, well, you have to be there for Holi. And they hadn't even thought of that. And Holi is is another spectacular festival. I mean, you can't miss it if you're in the country around that time. It's when, you know, you again, you've probably seen images. People throw these colored powders at each other and celebrate with it's the festival of color and so you you dress you come dressed in 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 not your best clothes because they're going to be completely ruined because you're you're smearing all of this lovely color on on each other and it really is um you know it, it signifies the beginning of spring it's it's got very many meanings and layers but it's it's a joyous celebratory time. Like I said, there's not, the thing with India is it's too big. There's not a perfect time to go and do everything. You've got to find the perfect time to go and do one thing and just enjoy it. And do that's it, well. it. Don't think okay. about, don't think about the FOMO. Just think about what you're, stay in the moment and do what I, you I can do. I think that's great advice. Okay. So with that, we've been talking for a while now. 
you have an idea of what, you know, where my interests might lie in terms of what I would want to do in India. Let's say I'm finally going to do my first trip to India. I've got a week and a half, two weeks. Where, where are you sending me as my specialist? It's not off the beaten track, but I would say that you have to do Rajasthan and you have to do the palaces. I think yes. that you've, I think that you've got to do it. List. Yes. And Rajasthan will give you both. So I think that that will allow you to really experience, get a taste of that life. The, the palace trail in, in Rajasthan is exquisite. I mean, when you're talking about levels of service, you will find that. When you're talking about food culture, it's amazing. And again, the food culture in Rajasthan, wildly different than everything else that we've spoken about. These are obviously, this is the desert. And so you have beautiful sand dunes and and a gorgeous, you know, gorgeous experiences that you have out in the desert under these amazing tents where they light, literally there are places that will count and light a thousand lamps or lanterns across the dunes that you're sitting and having your drinks in, in, in the evening. They'll bring the local musicians over to sing and to dance. You know, you're sitting on these beautiful carpets and rugs. You know, there's a fire that's lit at night because it'll get chilly as the sun comes down, but the sunsets are spectacular. So the cuisine that they eat there, of course, they cook a lot of things under the ground in a very specific way of of cooking. And so everything ends up having this really beautiful, smoky flavor. The flavors are all trapped in the food because they can't get out. So the scent and the fragrances are trapped in the food as well. So it really is a, a, a feast for all senses. There is there is a specific dish in Rajasthan that's my favorite, which is called jungli mas, and that's um, goat meat. Um, and it's only three ingredients that they use. So there's ghee, which, as you know, is clarified butter, and salt and red chilies, crushed red chilies. And that's cooked with this lamb. And it's so tender, falls off the bone, and it's so pure in its flavors. It's spicy, and you just, you know, a little bit of bread on the side, and it's one of the best, most memorable dishes you will ever eat. And it's three ingredients, and it blows my mind that a dish could be that great and that complex and so good. And it's just three three ingredients. It's fantastic. Um, okay, so it, what, is it Jaipur? Do you go to Jaipur and then go out to the national parks? Is that kind of how you would do? You could do them? that. You you could definitely do that. I would also look. Jaipur is you cannot not do Jaipur. It is the center of everything exciting that is happening. I find Jaipur to be, you know, the, the one of the most exciting cities in the world. Obviously, this is where if you are someone who loves jewelry as I am, or you know someone that loves jewelry, or you need to buy someone a very special present, you do not want to go to India and not go to Jaipur because you will find the most exquisite jewelry on the planet in the city. It's also where you find the most exquisite textiles, like Indian textiles, you know, that beautiful block printing that is so specific, that is done by hand so painstakingly till today is done in Rajasthan as well. And Jaipur is the big center for that. So incredible linens, beautiful cottons, everything block printed, the the most stunning colors you will ever see. You know, that very famous line about how hot pink is the navy blue of India that Diana Vreeland said when she was editor of Vogue. That really is how you, when you look at Rajasthan, that's the line that comes to mind because everything is 
wild, wild colors. I mean, you, you see colors in ways that you've never seen before. Jaipur is known as the pink city. Everything is pink sandstone. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. The palaces are gorgeous. There's peacocks everywhere you go. There is an amazing cafe culture. The architecture is beautiful, but it's also a very international city because of all of this amazing tradition and culture and heritage of craftsmanship that exists in Jaipur really draws artists from all over the world. And so it really is very cosmopolitan and international in, in a certain way. And yet, extremely like shows you the best of Indian craftsmanship and old tradition and culture in another way. So I just love how those two come together. So yes, you in a nutshell, you cannot skip Jaipur. Another city that I love, especially if this is a romantic break, I would say go to Udaipur, which is right on the lake. Every hotel there is exquisite, right on the water. Having a meal by candlelight on that water is something that you will remember for the rest of your life. It's very, very special. And then Jodhpur, which is the blue city, where you'll find a lot of the architecture is painted a specific color of blue. And that has, again, incredible step wells that have been restored. The old city has actually been completely restored and is gorgeous now. And they have, for example, on on one of those major step wells in the old city, there is the Stepwell Cafe where everybody gathers and hangs out. All of the young people in the city come together and hang out there. There's beautiful shopping. There's great food. The Mehrangar Fort, which is my favorite fort in India. Obviously, there's many of them. In Jaipur, there's Amber Fort, which is also exquisite. But my favorite fort in India is is probably the Mehrangar Fort. It's beautiful. It's imposing. The tour that you do there is just magical. There's there's a Kali temple in there as well, which is very unique if you if you know the goddess Kali. It, it really is an amazing, amazing place to to go and, and to spend a few days. So I would say that all of those cities are amazing. But Jaisalmer, which is out in the desert and where you can have all of these amazing experiences, as I mentioned, in the dunes is also fantastic. I will add one more thing. Don't skip the Taj Mahal. You don't have to do it on your first trip. It's fine. But don't skip the Taj Mahal because I will say, you know, we've we've seen so many images and you see so many videos, you see documentaries, you do all of that stuff that I think in a lot of cases, by the time you get to the place, it feels underwhelming. The Taj Mahal will not. Okay. It will not be underwhelming. You okay. must go. I will take your advice on that. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. Wow. Yes, we need more than a week and a half. We need, again, a, a month, it sounds like, just for... Just for Rajasthan. You can do this. You can do this one in 10 days. I promise. Okay. 10 days. Okay. Can I add just one more place in India before we start? Of course you can. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Because I can't, I can't not, I can't not mention it because it's, it's my favorite place that has my heart and that's Kashmir. So right up north, obviously there's been, there's been periods of time where you couldn't go because it was, it was dangerous. That is not the case anymore. Kashmir is absolutely spectacular. Like Rajasthan, it is one of those places where you will not see anything like it anywhere else in the world. There's parts of it that look, I would say, most similar to Switzerland. But aside from that, I can't think of anywhere else. You enter into Srinagar, which is where you see all of those iconic houseboats. So you could actually stay in a houseboat for the night for a few nights, which is an incredibly beautiful experience. If you really want 
if you're a slow traveler, if you really want to absorb a place and you really want to decompress and calm down and not move around too much, then I think it's an amazing place to spend a few days. The Mughal Gardens of Srinagar are spectacular. So if you go in April, you go when all of the tulips are in bloom and it looks like Amsterdam. It's gorgeous. You know, it's just absolutely stunning. But this is obviously Mughal architecture. So incredibly symmetrical gardens, beautiful fountains. It's a riot of color. And then you go on to places like Pehelgam when you can go, you know, trekking. You do incredible experiences. There's nomads still there. There's shepherds. You can see how they make cheese. You see how they, I mean, it's just, it's, it's really truly a very unique sort of gateway into a very different way of life. And it's very, very beautiful. And then of course you can go to Gulmarg. And if you come slightly before April, then you can go skiing. Um, if you're a big skier, then we have great, great slopes in, in Gulmarg to, to ski in. And that's really, you know, magical in the winter time when, you're sitting by the fire and you're drinking some kava. You're a big tea person, I know. And kava is a very specific tea that we have in Kashmir. We have another tea, which is called noon chai, which is actually, you put salt into that as opposed to sugar. So also very different. The tea culture in Srinagar is something that never gets talked about and is actually so, so incredibly rich. And what's amazing about that is the bread culture that goes along with it. And so depending on the time of day that you go to the bakery, you will get a different bread that is baked at different times of the day in Kashmir. And that is so unique to Kashmir. I've never seen that anywhere else in the world. And these breads are fantastic. And you drink them either with the kava or the noon chai. And it really is something that, again, people gather around and they welcome you into their homes. And no matter where you are, and you know, when you're sitting on a houseboat and you have all of these fabulous um, sellers who are coming by on their boats and selling you fresh flowers or selling you fresh vegetables or selling you jewelry or trinkets or souvenirs. And it's all of these experiences are just really one of a kind and unique. You, you can't get them anywhere else. So, so you've got to go to Kashmir. I'm getting chills thinking about these these trips that you're talking and these experiences that you're, I'm that glad. you're describing. I'm here. glad to hear that. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining. This has been honestly like we, we are definitely going to India now, but it's just been, I, I mean, inspiring and, and fun. Hearing, hearing your insights, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and letting me talk about India. And now, for the Wallen Wrap-Up. Speaking with Divya definitely has me thinking about Rajasthan and, uh, more specifically, about tigers. I have, I've mentioned this before, I think, but I have this strange goal of seeing all of the different big cats in the wild, and, and tigers are one that I have not seen as are snow leopards, which you can also see in India, but um, that one, of course, is a little harder to to do. But I, I actually, Divya talked about that, the effort that is involved in seeing tigers. It's like, you, no guarantees. You go out and you look and maybe you find them, maybe maybe you don't. But also she talked about how, like, how the payoff can be better because of that, you know, when you put in that kind of effort. And honestly, it reminded me of a, a story that I have told here before on the show, but when I saw a puma, the one and only time, you know, pumas, mountain lions, they live in the mountains right behind my house, but I have never, ever seen one until I went down to Patagonia Torres del Paine National Park in Chile, which is, by the way, maybe my favorite place ever in the whole world. It's incredible. There was a photographer there, a woman who, a wildlife photographer, and she was going out at four in the morning one morning to, to go look for pumas. And she asked a few of us if we wanted to go. I tagged along. We were out there in the dark, probably, it's actually earlier than that. I think it was like three 
We were in the dark for hours, didn't see anything, came back. And then the next afternoon, she said, I'm going to do it again tomorrow. Do you want to go? And I thought, you know what? Yeah, I do. And we did it again. And sure enough, we finally saw one like right when the sun was about to come up. And it was, again, like it, it was a magical experience regardless. But the fact that we had worked for it made it just all the more special. Speaking of great wildlife encounters, Deborah Kalmeyer. She was, I think, episode 13 back in 2022, one of my all-time favorite episodes. And she talks about an incredible encounter that she had with wild dogs. And I actually tell my Puma story in, in a little bit more detail in that episode. But I bring up Deborah because she is going to be on our very next episode of Travel That Matters. It is a South Africa destination special with Deborah. Liam Tomlin, the chef, the South African chef, Liam Tomlin, and others. So definitely keep your eyes out for that episode. It's going to be a great one. We'd like to thank Diviatani for joining us today on Travel That Matters. For more information on some of the destinations that we talked about today, please check out our show notes or visit kurtco.com backslash travel that matters. Travel That Matters is produced and edited for Kurtco Media by AJ Mosley. Marketing by Katrin Skapertis and hosted by me, Bruce Wallen, and we will see you down the road.